All right, guys. Hey, it is incredible to be here tonight. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and flip open to Luke 18. That's where we're going to be at. If you don't got a Bible, we got a bunch in the lobby. If you don't own one, you can grab one when you leave. Otherwise, you can pull it up on your cell phone or ask a neighbor. I'm sure they'll be kind to you. This is seriously just incredible. We are so, so excited to be up here at UNI. We cannot wait. Every time we come up to Cedar Falls, I'm like, Cody, can we just crash at your house till like October 22nd, tell my parents to bring our stuff up and it'd be a great time. So, but I don't know. We, we got to say some goodbyes and names and stuff. So my name's Steven, like Cody was saying, I've been in Ames as a student for four years and then uh, been on staff with Salt Company for the last three years. And we are super excited to be moving up here. This is my incredible family. So you got Natalie, my beautiful wife. Yeah. I think the awes were for the kids, but I say awe when I look at Natalie. So we've been married for three years, and it has been incredible. Natalie is, Natalie, you just want to wave? Yeah. (laughs) Guys, she is super warm, super kind, so wise, helps me think through things all the time. Just a godly woman that I love and you guys will love here very quickly. Then we got the sweetest girl in the freaking world, Isla Ellen Jones. We just call her Isla. We got her name off a cemetery gravestone. There's a story there. That really is the story. We just walked through a graveyard and we got her name. (laughs) Then you got big man Jack Delmas Jones. Jack, he was born in April, and so it's been a super fun with them. Isla is almost two years old, and she is awesome. So that's our family. Natalie and I actually met in the fourth grade. So we went to Four Mile Elementary, and I showed up. I was the new kid at school in fourth grade, walked in to Mrs. Nemeth's class, and I had this little desk pod. So I sit down at my desk pod. Miss Nemeth is up there, and I got Sheena LeVan to my left, who told me to shut up on the first day. <laughs> Just scarred for life, never let her live that down. Then you had cool guy Colt Minky. His dad was a firefighter, great stories, was there in my desk pod. And then I saw the most gorgeous woman I had ever seen in my little fourth grade life to that point. <laughs> Natalie Annette McComas, eventually to be Jones. Natalie McComas sitting in my desk pod. So first day, fourth, fourth grade, four mile elementary, supposed to be looking at Miss Nemeth, looking at Miss, or Miss Natalie, yeah, Natalie, looking at Natalie, probably why Sheena told me to shut up because I was distracted asking her questions, but I just couldn't take my eyes off Natalie. And believe it or not, over the course of the fourth grade, I developed just this massive crush on her to the point that I had a dream at one point in the school year that we went to Adventureland and we're riding the Ferris wheel together, (laughs) holding hands. It was one of those dreams where you wake up and you're like, no, 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 go back to sleep, go back to sleep, go back to sleep. (laughs) And it happened, show up to school. I'm like, maybe Maybe it was prophetic. I don't know. <laughs> and it wasn't. Totally, totally wasn't. So fast forward real quick. When we actually started dating, on our very first date, not being prompted, Natalie said, I hate heights. I'll never go on a Ferris wheel. I was like. <laughs> so, okay, back to fourth grade. <laughs> One day, it's indoor recess, and I'm doing, like, paper origami because that's what you do at indoor recess, you know? That's what you do. You just fold swans. That's what, that is what all of us did, folded just tons and tons of swans. And all of a sudden, I look up from my swan, 
And Natalie McComas is walking straight to my desk. Natalie McComas. And she walks straight up and she has this big smile on her face and she looks at me and I look at her and she slides this note onto my desk. Yeah. Get rid of the swan. What is in this note? And I look up at her and I'm like, and she's like, uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, it has this big heart on it. So I start unfolding it. It had like 10 folds. So fold the first flowers. Ooh, okay. Hearts, more flowers, some XO. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I fold open the last flap and it says to Stephen from Lauren. Her best friend. I was so devastated on the spot. I crumple up the note and just walk up, throw it away. And Natalie, the sweetheart that she is, walks over, grabs the note out of the nasty trash can, walks up to my desk like, you really hurt Lauren's feelings. How mean are you? And I'm just like, you have no idea what is going on in my heart right now. So... I was like, I'm crushed. Her best friend likes me. There's no chance of marriage there. So <laughs> we leave Miss Nemus' class. And honestly, for the rest of our elementary, junior high, high school career, we didn't really share any context. We went to Southeast Polk High School, so pretty big high school in Iowa, but just would run into each other every once in a while. So fast forward, freshman retreat, 2012. We are at uh, some camp in Iowa. Doesn't matter. But I walk out from the main session and there's this big bonfire. I'm chilling, eating my s'more. And I look around the fire and there's Natalie McComas. I'm like, she's at Iowa State? She's part of This is crazy. So I walked over and I like started up a conversation. We talked for a half hour. I'm like, oh my goodness. Ferrisville dream is about to come true. <laughs> Except when once again, she broke my heart and she said, oh yeah, my boyfriend likes that too. And I'm like, ah. Ah. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, have a good night. And I just left. So. <laughs> so that's freshman year. Sophomore year rolls around. Same thing. Dating a guy. Junior year rolls around. And a couple of my buddies are like, hey, have you seen this Natalie McComas girl? She's kind of cute. Seems like she loves God a ton. I'm like, yeah, she is cute. Loves God a ton. And she's taken. Totally going to marry the guy she's dating. I'm like, ah. Second guy. Exact same conversation. And I started thinking, actually, are they still dating? So I do a deep Facebook dig. <laughs> deep and like don't see any pictures of him so we get to finals week I'm in the library we both have applied for overseas mission trips and we run into each other at the library at Iowa State University and mid-conversation I just abruptly go hey are you still dating that guy she's like no I actually am not I'm like oh I'm so sorry <laughs> yeah that's like what I'm thinking and my heart's racing because I have like this test in like 30 minutes. I'm like, uh, okay. So the whole, I don't have her phone number or anything because we never hung out. So the whole winter break, I'm just like, do I Facebook message her? Do I slip into those DMs and do I go there? <laughs> I decided not to. As soon as we got, <laughs> we're married. You know the end of this story. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> So first weekend back, we're at this retreat. It was beautiful. God completely set this up. 
My training table was right next to her training table. The only seat at my training table was back to back to hers. Didn't learn anything at the retreat, but flirted the entire time. <laughs> Asked her out on a date at the end. She said yes. The first date went great. The second date went great. The third date went great. Fast forward, I asked her to marry me. She said yes. We've been married seven, not seven years. <laughs> we dated seven months, engaged seven months, been married for three years, and it's been awesome. So, that Ferris wheel has to happen soon. But guys, over the course of these last three years, multiple times, Natalie and I have sat back and thought on our dates, like, man, what, what, even though we knew each other for so long, what do you think would have happened if we had started dating sooner than like our third year of college? And as we thought about it, we we're like, you know what? And all honestly, honesty, I think it would have been a very bad thing if we had started dating before the end of college. Because as we think back to where we were at in high school, especially towards the end of high school, we both were just spiritual train wrecks. There was unhealth in our life. And so as we were coming into college, although we both had church backgrounds, we came into college wearing just thick masks. There was just so much deception and so much brokenness going on in each of our lives that we were just putting on this mask and we were able to fool a bunch of people around us and make it look like our, our faith and everything was intact, but really it was in shambles. So when we think back, we're like, man, had we started dating in high school, we would have for sure broke up. Because when we came in, we were just wearing these masks. So for me, my freshman year, I come into college, and Sunday through Thursday, I was the church kid. Like everybody who would have looked at me, looked at my life, they'd been like, yeah, total church kid, totally on fire for Jesus. But then on the weekends, I was just going to every party I could possibly go to. Just every single one. And this was the life I was living for about a month or so in college. Just, just this duality. Just wearing this mask. So I had everyone fooled at church. Everyone fooled back at home. That life was good and that my faith was great. And I was just wearing this mask. And here's the reality that I think a lot of you walking into tonight are in. That you have managed this last four weeks to wear these masks that to the outside looking world, your life looks pretty put together. To everyone around you, even to your small group, when they look at your life, they're like, yeah, that person's like, they're totally good. They're doing great. But you know, deep down, like, man, if they only knew what was going on, they'd be shocked. And so it was my freshman year, I sat in my salt kickoff at, on Iowa State's campus, and this guy named Cody Klein that is now here gets up on stage, and I'm sitting in this lawn just living this completely duplicitous life. And I'll never forget what Cody said. Cody gets up there and he says, hey, you know what? The number one time of life that people regret is their first two months of college. The number one time that people will regret most in their life are their first two months of college. And I'll never forget that moment because burned in my mind is this one thought. I only had one thought going through my mind. That will be me. That will be me. I had this conscious awareness that the exact moment of my life I was in was gonna be the moment that I regretted most. But I was terrified to tell anybody what was going on. I was terrified that if I had told the people that had poured so much into me during high school, the decisions that I had made when I went to college, that there was no way that I'd be accepted. 
that there was no way that anybody would receive me. And so I sat on that lawn feeling so ashamed of what had happened in the first month of college and yet so paralyzed and trapped. And so the only solution in my mind was to put on a mask, to continue this lie and convince everyone around me that everything was going okay and not let anybody into the brokenness that I was experiencing. That is some of you tonight. That is some of you tonight. You are wearing a mask and you have this thought that you are terrified that if anybody in this room or if anyone back home knew what was really going on, the thoughts that you were having, the decisions that you've made, that you would be rejected, that you'd be disowned, that there would not be a place for you in here. Maybe we'd let you still come, but there's no way you could ever be in the in crowd. Guys, we're gonna look at this passage tonight in Luke 18. And the principle that we're gonna see is the principle that unlocked both for Natalie and I, our freshman year, how to walk in the freedom that we have in Christ. If you can get what this passage is gonna reveal to us tonight, it will enable you to live free from, this, from your sin and shame. If you can see what this passage, this story that Jesus is gonna tell us is saying, it will free you to take the mask off and to begin to be honest with God and others of where you're really at. So we're going to look at this passage in Luke 18. We're talking about our fourth foundation at Salt Company tonight is the foundation of repentance. We want to be people marked by just a lifestyle of repentance, people who are vulnerable and have nothing to hide. So here's what we're doing. We're doing two things. We're going to look at this passage See this story that Jesus told us, and then we're going to ask, where do we go from here? What are some just practical next steps as we seek to be people who live in this repentant lifestyle? So Luke 18 is where we're going to be. Go ahead and flip there. If you're not already there, Luke 18, verse 9, 14. And to set the stage, Jesus and Luke first tell us who his audience is. So here's verse nine. This is the audience that Jesus is about to tell this story to. It says, he also told this parable, that's just a story, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. All right, face value, that sounds super negative and it is negative, but just think about who is the makeup of this audience. In all honesty, if we were to look at this audience, they would strike us as very normal, very decent people. So that's the audience about to hear this story. They got some problems, but really, if we were to look at them, we would say, yeah, that looks like a normal group of people that I'd want to hang out with. So here's the story. Jesus jumps in, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So you got two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Number one, the Pharisee. So Pharisees were the religious scholars of the Jewish faith, super devout, super disciplined, super religious. Now, for those of you that don't have much of a church background, probably nothing pops into your head when you think, when you hear the word Pharisee, and that's great. But for those of us who've been around church for a while, when we hear Pharisee, we hear, dun, 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 bad guy of the Bible, right? If you've been around church, you hear Pharisee and you're like, Oh, here's the bad guy, the big enemy of Jesus. But just step back for a moment, erase just for a second what you know about Pharisees and think how this audience would have heard when there's a Pharisee in the story. 
the audience would have heard that this is the most admirable person in society. So they don't hear bad guy. It's more like they hear Captain America, not Thanos. Like Captain America, the most admirable person, the most high character, the most high integrity guy out there, the guy everybody wants to be. That's the Pharisee in this audience mind. The cream of the crop. So that's character number one. Character number two, the tax collector. So in the first century, the Jewish nation was under the occupation of the Roman Empire. And so a part of that were these tax collectors. They were Jews who defected to the Roman Empire to work for the Roman Empire, and they would collect taxes from their own people. The thing that made them so despicable in the eyes of the Jewish nation was that they not only took the rate that they were allowed to take for the Roman Empire, but then they would just jack up the rates and just steal from their own people left and right. So they are the most despicable people in the minds of the Jews. You got people that have abandoned their own people to help fuel the Roman Empire who is oppressing nation after nation after nation. These guys in the minds of this audience are the most pathetic guys you can imagine of. So when the audience hears tax collector, they're thinking like, look, I might not be perfect, but I'd never stoop to that level. Like for us, it's like the people that we hear about on the news. It's like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know you could be that jacked up. Like that is who this person is. The tax collector is the most despicable, pathetic guy that they could have thought of. So these two guys are heading down to the temple to pray. And here's their prayers. First, the Pharisees, verse 11. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. All right, so that's the Pharisee's prayer. And again, it sounds really negative when you read it out loud. But again, pause. Think about what he's saying. He's saying, God, I thank you I'm not like greedy people, unrighteous adulterers, or even this most despicable person on earth, tax collector. Guys, you can't blame the Pharisee for not wanting to be those things. Like, it's like, yeah, I'd be grateful I'm not those things either. The Pharisee's saying, God, thank you that I am not like these other people, the greedy, the unrighteous, the adulterers, or even like this despicable person. So put yourself in the Pharisee's shoes for a second. Your entire life, you've worked super hard You've been the best guy that you could possibly be. You've been upstanding, a man of integrity. Like, if you think about that, we all pray the exact same prayer. For those of us that when we think, honestly, I'm, I'm a pretty decent person, we might not ever state these prayers out loud like the Pharisee, but each of us in our hearts look at people that we hear about on the news or look at the people that we consider most despicable, and we're like, yeah, I'm glad that's not my story. Yeah, I'm glad that I am not that lazy. I'm glad that somebody instilled in me the value of hard work. Yeah, I'm glad that I know what is right and what is wrong. I'm glad that's not me. We might not ever say these out loud, but guys, those are the same prayers that we pray. So then you get the tax collector's prayer, verse 13. The tax collector comes into the temple and here's what he does. He stands far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Guys, imagine what led to this day in the life of this tax collector. 
in the beginning, you're just young, you're entrepreneurial, you have drive and zeal, you want to advance in your career, so you take the easy way out. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, I got a way for you to make a ton of money, and you can, you can skip college. You can go the easy way. He's like, what's the catch? He's like, well, you got to betray your family and work for the Roman Empire, but you're going to make six figures tomorrow. And so you're like, ah, that sounds horrible, but you signed the dotted line. So he signs the dotted line, and day one just starts making tons and tons and tons of money. And at first, like the first couple of years, it's kind of hard to take extra, but then you begin to justify it and it gets easier and easier for you to take money. And after a decade goes by, you're rich. You go to the coolest parties. You have the house that your parents never had. You go to the places to eat that your parents never got to go to. You have never worried about money for a day in your life. But at some point in your career, something shifts and you begin to see the decisions that you have made. And you begin to feel as despicable to yourself as you are to everybody else. And it gets harder and harder to go to work each day and you still just take the same amount of money because it's the only thing that can numb you to, to the awful person that you've become. And it doesn't matter which party you go to, which, which house you buy, you can't shake the feeling that you're horrible. And so who knows how many Sabbaths this tax collector had tried to muster the courage to get down to the temple? You know, maybe it's like week after week, month after month, he's been sitting there going, okay, maybe this is, maybe this is the Sabbath I'll go. I, I don't belong there. I haven't been there for years. Maybe, maybe this is the Sabbath I'll go. No, nobody wants me there. Maybe, maybe this is the Sabbath I'll go. And, and who knows why this was the one that he went, but, but imagine the long walk that he starts going. He starts walking down the temple. He finally got up. He finally got going. And every step, it's like, I should turn back. Another step, ah, I should turn back. But he makes it to the temple. He walks up to the gate and, and looks around. Maybe he hadn't been there since he signed the dotted line. Sheepishly walks in and just immediately feels all of the guilt. Just immediately feels all of the shame. And so he stands far off. He wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. He kept striking his chest and, and all that can come out of his mouth is this. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. That's all he can get out of his mouth. Just God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's his prayer. So at this point in the story, there is a tension building in our original audience's minds. At this point in the story, they have one question that's on the back of their mind. And it's the one question that every Jew, when they went to the temple, was asking. And the question is, whose worship will be accepted? Because every Jew, when they went to the temple, the thing that they wondered was, will my worship be accepted? So in fact, you have entire books of the Bible in the Old Testament that deal with that one question, how to have acceptable worship before God. So that's the question that's on the back of these people's mind. They're like, okay, this Pharisee goes, this tax collector goes, whose worship will be accepted? And Jesus gives them this shocking answer. Verse 14. I tell you that this one, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. A Pharisee and tax collector go to the temple and the tax collector leaves justified. He leaves accepted before God and the Pharisee is rejected. 
Guys, at this, the audience would have been absolutely dumbfounded. Are you kidding me? How is this possible, Jesus? How is it possible that the person that we most admire in our society and the person that we most despise in our society, that that one could be accepted and that one's rejected? How is that possible, Jesus? Guys, do you feel the outrage of this a little bit? Where you're thinking, are you, are you serious, Jesus? You're telling me that I could work my fingers to the bone. I could be the best dad I could possibly be. I could be the best worker I could possibly be. I could be the best Christian I could possibly be. And at the end of the day, I could spend eternity rejected from you. And yet some pathetic, despicable person could just say, hey, I'm sorry. And he is accepted. Does that stir a little outrage in you? How is that possible? How is it possible that the people that we only hear about on the news because they're so wicked could be accepted when the people who are the best of the best are rejected? Guys, the thing that the audience didn't realize and the thing that the Pharisee didn't realize is that when we ask the question, how good am I compared to other people? How good am I compared to the worst person I can think of? We can walk away feeling pretty good about ourselves. It's like, okay, how good am I compared to the most despicable, newsworthy person I can think of? All right, pretty good. But how does that self-assessment shift when our frame of reference shifts from how good am I compared to the worst person I can think of to how good am I compared to the perfect holiness of God? Guys, when that is our reference point, we begin to realize that the difference between the tax collector and the Pharisee compared to the holy perfection of God is paper thin. It's insignificant. Think about it this way. Okay. I don't know if you've observed this as I'm talking, but I got a dad bod. And if we were to play basketball, you'd beat me. That is just a fact. I wrestled in high school, so that alone would already tell you that every single person in this room would beat me. But on top of that, I've been wanting to buy Keens for a while now. If your dad wears Keens, I'll be joining him here in a minute. So let's go dad bod. Thank you. Thank you, my man. So... You and I play basketball, you beat me handedly. No problem, you beat me. And you start to walk away thinking, all right, that was easy. Maybe I'm NBA potential. Huh? Huh? NBA? I don't know. I, I feel pretty good about my basketball skill. But let's say two minutes later, LeBron James walks in through the door. How does that change your self-assessment of your basketball skills? You're like, Wow, Steve and I both suck at basketball, <laughs> right? That's what you, your self-assessment completely changes. Why? Because your reference point to what you're comparing yourself changed. Guys, when we look at the Pharisee and the tax collector, when we look at people around us, we can walk away thinking, man, I think that in some way I am more deserving of God's love and favor than that person. In all honesty, I think I'm the caliber of person that God is super pleased with, and that is the type of person that God is not. But when we shift our reference point to how good am I compared to God, we begin to realize that we are all absolutely desperate for God's grace. That whatever difference that we see in each other is actually paper thin and insignificant compared to the infinite gap that's between us and God. And the question that we now wrestle with is not who is good and who is bad. The question for the Pharisee and the tax collector was never who is good in this story and who is bad in this story. 
The question in this story was which of these two bad guys would humble themselves before God? Which of these two guys would recognize their need for grace and humble themselves before God? It was the tax collector. And he went home accepted before God. Which that raises another question for us. How can God accept sinful, broken people? How can God do that? How can God accept somebody as despicable as this tax collector? Because the answer is that the only way that God could accept the tax collector was if he would reject Jesus, his son. Because God created everything. He created us and loved us, but each of us has rejected him. And that rejection deserves condemnation. But God in his love for us, his love for creation, didn't want to leave us in this state of brokenness. So 2,000 years ago, God became man, Jesus, and went to the cross to bear the condemnation that we deserve for our sin on himself so that we could be accepted into a relationship with him. Guys, Jesus Christ bore the shame and guilt of our sin on the cross for us so that we could be brought in to the family of God. We're talking about this fourth foundation, repentance. And here's what I want to say. Until you realize that, until you realize that your standing before God isn't based on what you have done, you will never be able to admit before God and others who you really are. Until you realize that your standing and your acceptance before God doesn't rest on what you have done, but what on Jesus has done for you, you will never be able to be a person who shakes the feeling that they have to appear a certain way before God and others. But guys, when you realize that Jesus Christ loves you and died for you so that you could come into a relationship with God, not based on what you had done, but based on what he has done for you, you will actually begin to live in a way that is marked by vulnerability, that is marked by honesty about who you are and what you're struggling with. But as long as you think I have to perform for God to love me, you will never be able to tell God or others about your sin. You won't. You won't be able to. So guys, let me give you a couple practical steps as we think about what this should look like in our lives. Guys, each of us has brokenness in our life. And each of us, to some degree or one or another, are masking that brokenness, both from God and to other people. All of us are in that boat. So the first thing that we need to do, the first step that you need to take tonight is to be honest to God. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 100th time, but you need to pray the prayer of the tax collector. So many of us pray the prayer of the Pharisee, God, thank you that I'm doing okay. But tonight you need to pray to consider the infinite gap between us and God, to consider the weight of our brokenness before him and to pray the tax collector's prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I pulled out the calendar today um, and looked up September 2012, which is when I was a freshman. And it was actually two days ago today that I was sitting on the floor of my dorm room, just absolutely overwhelmed by the weight of my sin. Um, it was weeks after the salt kickoff. And I woke up after just a stupid weekend and just overwhelmed by the decisions I had made. I was like, this has to, this has to end. And so I'll never forget 
on that floor just crying out to God, God, have mercy, a sinner. I've made horrible mistakes this month. Things that I will always be ashamed of, but I am so thankful for your grace. Guys, I was overwhelmed by my brokenness before God. And you know what I was met with in that moment? I was met with a father full of grace. I was met with a father full of grace because that father once rejected his son in my place. So that now I could come to God with the mask off and just say, God, have mercy. Number two, you need to be honest before some people. It doesn't need to be everybody, but it needs to be before some people. Guys, that afternoon after I was on my dorm floor, I called up my dad and said, Dad, this is what's been going on this month. And, and then I went to my connection group that night and said, guys, I've had you guys all fool, fooled, which I did. They, were, they had no idea. And I said, but this is exactly what's been going on for the last six weeks of my life. And you know what I was met with again in those moments? Grace. I was met with grace from people who they themselves had experienced grace and now were showing me grace and were ready to walk alongside me on my path to walk in obedience to Christ. Because we're about to go on this three-day trip to Hidden Acres. And what I want is that the grace of Jesus, what he has done for you, to so melt your heart that tomorrow night in small group, you show up and you say, guys, I've never been this honest with people, but here it is. Mask off, junk on the table. And guys, that is absolutely terrifying. I get it. I know that confessing sin before other people is absolutely terrifying. Bringing your sin into the light is terrifying. But here's my challenge. It is absolutely more terrifying to leave your sin in the dark because sin in the dark kills you. So tomorrow night, I want you to show up to small group and just be like, hey, no more games, no more darkness. Here it is. And as you do that, you will find a father full of grace and you will find people in this room full of grace, ready to show you the grace that's been shown them. Guys, what if Salt Company, this room, was a group of people that when outsiders showed up, they said, holy smokes, I've never seen a group of people more honest about their weaknesses, more vulnerable, and yet more confident in the grace of Christ. Who are these people that can actually tell people the crap that is in their life, but then walk out accepted by God? And what would that do on you and I's campus? If we were people who actually were honest about our weakness, because as we are, that highlights the grace of Jesus. Because until you understand that your acceptance before God is based completely on what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, you will always have to wear a mask. But when what Jesus did for you melts your heart, you will actually be able to be in a posture of vulnerability and live a life marked by repentance. Let's pray. God, uh, I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm so thankful that you looked at me a broken, jacked-up dude in a desperate, desperate place. 
The guy that faced an eternity separated from you because of my sin. And you had a love for me that moved you to come and take my place on the cross. God, I pray that my life would be so centered on that reality that I wouldn't think for a second about trying to prove something to you or prove something to other people. God, that I, that I would be so centered on Jesus's death for me and the grace that I've been shown that I would just walk in the freedom of no secrets to be somebody who is fully known and yet loved by you because of what Christ has done for me. God, I pray that tonight students in this room, that leaders in this room, that staff in this room, that me in this room would have a transformational moment in my life, in our lives, where we can look back on a calendar of September 2019 and say, oh my goodness, that weekend, that weekend is when the grace of God penetrated into my heart in a new way. And it freed me to actually be honest about who I am, to humble myself before God, to not try to posture myself before you or others, but to actually own my sin and in that find freedom and power to walk in obedience to you. God, let us be a people marked by vulnerability and repentance. Let us be a people that our weakness only highlights the grace of God. Let us be a people that are so serious about our sin that whatever fear we might have about bringing it into the light would pale to the terrifying reality of keeping our sin in the dark. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.